I'm going to read today's scripture. In Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became uh, a, a traitor. And he came, uh, and, sorry, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Verse 27, But I say to you uh, who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect, sorry. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back to the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Thanks, uh, Donald. That was a long one. (laughs) I did that on purpose. Uh, (laughs) He was complaining because it was a split. It was a split passage. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Leo. Um, so over the last, I want to say like the last couple of months, some of the elders, uh, some of the pastoral staff, we have been, uh, for some of us, rereading a book called The Church of Us Versus Them uh, by my professor and Tommy's professor, uh, David Fitch. And um, it's, it's a fascinating read. I encourage you guys to read it. Um, so we've been having sort of this theme of, of enemy love over the last few weeks. And uh, that's kind of where my mind was. And so I wanted to have a conversation today about what it looks like to be a people in a church beyond enemies. And um, so we're going to go through this passage sort of, uh, sort of scene by scene. Um, because a lot of what we're seeing here in what has historically been called the Sermon on the Plain is Jesus sort of creating and inviting this space beyond enemies. And so we're going to go through this passage. Well, we're going to talk about what does it mean to love our enemies, right? That's a hard thing. Uh, and I also want to preface it by saying it's not something that I have uh, figured out. Uh, but it, has, it is something that I have personally encountered and I'm, I'm uh, sort of working through myself uh, so that I can eventually get to that point where um, I could say um, 
you know, that, that certain things that bothered me before or certain issues that happened in the past um, concerning people that were difficult to love, they're, they're not so problematic now. And so we, we all sort of have those encounters. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a people and a church beyond enemies. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my friends, my, my church family, Father. I thank you for this opportunity to share your gospel, share your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, invite you to be here, be present, speak through me. Help me to remember the things that, that I've studied. But more than anything, Father, help us to uh, take in your word, that it can form us and shape us and, and help us to be more and more Christ-like, uh, to strive towards uh, that goal, Father, of being your image bearers and being, being your kingdom bearers, Father, in every space that we enter, Lord. So I thank you and I give you all the praise. Um, open the ears, open the hearts to this message today, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So I, um, I, we, I had a, I've been doing a class with some of, uh, some of the folks here uh, on the gifts of the Spirit over the last few weeks, and I shared last week about how um, I can't help it. I love to share stories of my past, stories of my culture, the culture that I come from. Um, it, it's who I am, and I also have shared before that I feel like when the question comes up, it, uh, you know, where, when, when do I know that the Holy Spirit is present? I think one of the reasons we can, we can tell when the Holy Spirit is present is when stories are being shared between people, um, and so that's super important to me. I love to share stories, and I love to hear stories, um, and so one of these stories that I wanted to talk to you guys today about um, was back in 2016, um, as a Caribbean-American, as a Cuban-American, back in 2016, um, something historic happened, and uh, it was that Fidel Castro passed away after being in power for decades. Um, and I remember when he died, I remember seeing people you know, crying on TV. I remember uh, calling up my mother, and she was crying, and it was like this it was this cry from like a really deep place, um, almost traumatic. And um, speaking with my grandmother, my grandfather, and all of these people who came from the island, who fled the island, um, and it was like this collective release of trauma that, that they were experiencing. I, I've never really experiencing, experienced anything before that or after that the same way, and so seeing so many people that were hurt by this, this one man, this man that was enemy to millions and millions of people. Um, and so a few months passed, and uh, there was a roundtable um, at a local organization that, that, that I went to, and it was a roundtable for the mental health of refugees, uh, of political refugees and immigrants, and um, I was, uh, this gentleman named Enrique was sort of invited to share his story, and, and he was an exile of, of the island. And, and I remember him crying as he recalled the brutal assault and murder of his older brother at the hands of Castro's police. Um, he went on to describe the events that followed and led to the eventual sort of escape of Cuba. And after the round table, there was like a Q&A session, and one of the panelists asked him, although, you know, one of the panelists asked him, like, how do you, how are you dealing with this trauma after so many years, after so many decades? Like, emotionally, how have you lived with this memory of Castro and the terrible loss 
of your, of, of your, of your brother and, and, and all this pain that you've endured. And I'll never forget his words because they shocked me. Um, it, it wasn't quite what I was expecting. And his words were, although he caused us so much pain, through my faith I have learned to forgive him daily, to pray for his soul. Whoa. Like, it's not what I was expecting. Um, it was a very incredibly Christ-like sort of moment that, that I witnessed, and um, I couldn't imagine how difficult that is, especially being around my family, being around my mother, being around my father, being around my grandparents, and seeing sort of the trauma that they have experienced, the memories, and, and then for this man to go up there and say what he said was, it stopped me in my tracks, even as a believer. And so to forgive and pray for someone who has legitimately been an enemy to an entire people is beyond many of us. And so we sort of find this theme of enemy love playing in the backdrop of Luke 6. So we're going to go through this passage today. I'm going to give you guys some context. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about sort of the situation leading up to uh, Jesus' most controversial ethic and uh, hope to show you how the events of Luke 6 play into his words. And so the Sermon on the Plain, um, this text has historically sort of been known as the Sermon on the Plain. Um, I don't, uh, most scholars think, most scholars know that this wasn't a one-time sort of sermon. It was sort of a collection of Jesus' sermons uh, and given this, this amazing backdrop. So it's probably something that Jesus probably preached often, right? It corresponds to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, and there's, there's a few similarities, but Luke's is more condensed. And so... I have a little bit of a sore throat, guys, so I'm going to take a cough drop. And Sorry. Um, and so I'm going to start, uh, start at chapter 6, 1 through 2. So this was during Sabbath. Jesus was going through the grain fields, and some of his disciples, sort of behind Jesus' back, they start plucking grains from the grain field, going through the grain field like picking the grains, rubbing them in their hands and doing all these crazy things with it and then eating it. Now, this was a violation of Jewish law. Jews were not allowed to reap food and eat on the Sabbath. Pharisees called them out. And so by the Pharisees calling them out, and this was not in today's reading, but I'm sort of giving you what led up to this. Um, but for, the, by the, but for the Pharisees to call them out meant that the Pharisees were sort of trailing behind Jesus and his disciples. They were watching. And so later on, Jesus healed this man in a synagogue, this man with a withered hand, also a violation of the Sabbath. Because to heal on the Sabbath was to work, and work was prohibited on the Sabbath. And so in verse 11, it says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So these, these homeboys were like getting, they were conspiring. They were already starting to sense sort of a power shift and a power grab going on here. And if this, in this, if this Galilean named Jesus is subverting sort of our cultural and religious norms, and now he's got a following, what's that going to do to our power, right? And so by this time, the religious leaders were starting to wonder like how this Jesus character can be stopped, 
He was blatantly defying Jewish law and doing it in plain view of those who preached the observance of these laws. And to make matters worse, like he was gathering a following, which meant more people essentially violating Torah. Like this is probably what was going through their minds. More people discrediting the significance of the Jewish law. And if he didn't get ahead of it, if they didn't get ahead of this subversive individual, then they'd lose their power. And so Jesus was not only gaining followers, but he was also gaining enemies along the way. And so this theme of enemies sort of plays into the Sermon on the Plain. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through it to show you guys how it does. So later on in Luke, uh, later on in Luke 6, 12, Luke tells us, Go to Luke 6, 12. All right. Uh, one of those days, on one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called to his disciples, called to him, and chose 12 of them, whom he had designated apostles. Now, Jesus had a ton of disciples. When we, when we, up to this point, when we see the word disciples, it's not just talking about the 12. But this is, at, this is the point where he goes up to the mountain and he chooses those 12. And the names of those 12 are Simon, who, whom he later called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Luke had to throw that in there. <laughs> he had to throw that in there. Um, so here we have Jesus on this mountaintop choosing his 12 disciples, choosing 12 to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, to symbolize the new covenant, to symbolize like, this new kingdom that is sort of being inaugurated through Jesus, this new and intimate way of God being present with his people. And this is all sort of happening around a mountaintop, right? Sort of drawing us back to Exodus and Mount Sinai and, and, and Moses sort of being this liaison between God and the people coming down the mountain, right? But now there is no liaison. God is now here face to face with us. Now, let's look at some of the people that Jesus chose. And this sort of all plays into the, into the chapter, into this sort of the theme of the chapter. So among the 12, he chooses two different families of fishermen, Right? Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they were part of the Jonah family. And then there was James and John, part of the Zebedee family. Now, fishing in the first century, sort of, there was this whole fishing economy in the first century. Like, it was not a free enterprise. It was sort of a part of the political economy of first century Galilee, sort of part of the political hierarchy, right? So the hierarchy was Caesar at the top. Then you had Herod and Antipas sort of uh, as his, like, uh, Consiglieri, if you guys know uh, mafia movies, come on. Um, the, tax, <laughs> the tax administrators, tax collectors, and beneath them, the fishing families. So it's got a little mafia vibe, right? The fishing families, you know? Um, now, we know that in, in the chapter before this one, Jonah, the Jonah family, and the Zebedee family were part of what's called a fishing cooperative, and so Herod would force these families in to sort of work together into these fishing cooperatives, right? Force them, so like this coercive cooperation, right, to increase production, right? The more people that can cast nets out into the ocean, the more fish. The only problem with this is more people working together, 
more fish, more taxes, right? So although these cooperatives worked for Herod, the families didn't necessarily like them. The families didn't necessarily like working with each other because that meant sort of splitting the revenue, right? So this was a highly regulated industry. So Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they worked together. And because they worked together, they were taxed together. Because fishing cooperatives in that time were among the most heavily taxed. Now, Matthew, Jesus also chose Matthew, who is a tax collector. He's their tax collector. You kind of seeing the, the, the connection here? These are Galilean fishermen who are heavily taxed. And Jesus chooses a, a tax collector to also be a part of his 12. This is the Galilean tax collector. They would have hated Matthew. Poor Matthew, he gets a lot of slack, man. Um, So Matthew was the Galilean tax collector, would have been the tax collector for the Jonah and Zebedee family, and he would have been the one ripping into their revenue ever so often, right? So when they came off their boats, it would have been Matthew coming up to them and saying, all right, guys, give me like 7% of this. Actually, times that by 10. You know, so like that that type of stuff, right? There was, this is how they did things in in the first century. And so there was this existing sort of economic tension between fishermen, between the fishermen and Matthew in this group. And then you have Simon the Zealot, right, who was a member of the Zealot party uh, named after the zeal of Phineas in the Old Testament. Who, who, they, these were people that were super passionate about obeying the law, right? So think, um, think like uh, Jewish Che Guevara, you know, like, anybody know Che Guevara? Okay. I mean, he's on t-shirts and stuff. Um, and graffiti. So over the years, as the empire imposed its will on the Jewish people, the zealots would turn to violence. So this was like a, a violent sect in Judaism, right? And now there's, there's some scholarship that says that Simon the zealot would have been a Sakari, right? Raise your hand if you've heard of the term Sakari. There was a great movie with uh, George Clooney years back, but it has nothing to do with this. Um, it's called the Sakari. So the Sakari were like this offshoot of the zealots, right? So what they would do is they would dress themselves as regular folks, go into crowds, and they'd have their Sakari sort of behind their back like this. It was a Sakari was a dagger. And so in these crowds, they would sort of uh, pretend to be part of the crowd, and then they'd go up to like a Roman person, or they'd go up to somebody on Roman payroll that they knew was on Roman payroll and just stick the Sakari right in them. So these were trained assassins, right? They, they mingled in crowds during festivals and, and all of this. So there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that Simon the Zealot was a Sakari. However, he was a Zealot, which meant that he would turn to violence if need be. And Simon the Zealot, being a Zealot, hated Romans and anybody on Roman payroll. And guess what? Matthew was on Roman payroll. So poor Matthew... He's like surrounded by all these guys that hate his guts. And Jesus is just standing by saying, you don't have to deal with it, guys. This is what we're doing here. This is going to be a space beyond enemies, right? So there's this natural enmity, right, between Simon and Matthew, right? Matthew being, you know, the tax collector on Roman payroll. He was a traitor to his people. So even within Jesus' inner circle of disciples, there exists this economic and political tension between his disciples, like this natural enmity, right? Eminitad, right? Did I say that right? My wife, Eminitad. Man, my Spanish, dude. We need Spanish classes here. Um, Charity, thank you. Um, 
I used to preach in Spanish too. It's been a while. Um, maybe one day, you never know. So now verse 17, Luke tells us in verse 17. Oh, I just had it up. I promise I'm going to get better at this as time goes on. Um, so he went down with them and stood on a level place. Jesus went down the mountain and stood on a level place. This is a lot different than Matthew's version where he stays on this sort of elevated uh, platform and, 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 and gives this amazing message. Uh, here, Jesus comes down the mountain and is face to face with these people. That's significant. And I'll tell you this much, Luke is very detailed. I've shared this before. I love, of all the gospel writers, Luke is my favorite. Um, he's very detailed. Uh, he loves to detail geography and things that you're thinking like, what is, what, what is the relevance here? It actually matters. Um, and also, I love Luke because he's always talking about food. Um, so he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. So Luke mentions the demographic of the people present in the crowd. This is intentional. People from all over Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were ancient port cities of Phoenicia. So these were Phoenicians, right? These were Phoenician cities. Now, Jews and Phoenicians sort of had a complicated history. They had like this love-hate relationship. Phoenicians were a trade city, so they provided a lot of the material for the, uh, the construction of the original temple. But in 163 BC, Tyre and Sidon were also responsible for persecuting Jews during the Maccabean Wars. So, and on top of that, Phoenicians... Uh, were polytheists and they worshiped gods and, and, and the gods of the Old Testament, gods that were enemies to the God of Israel. So there's this odd sort of relationship, this history between these two groups. So there would have been a distinct historical friction between the Jews of Judea and Jerusalem and the Phoenicians of Tyre and Sidon. But they were here in this crowd all together. In fact, Josephus, the great first century Jewish philosopher, wrote that the Phoenicians and the Tyrians were the Jews' most bitter enemies. But again, they were in this space together. But here, these bitter enemies, people who would, wouldn't be caught dead sharing the same space, breathing the same air, were in this crowd together. So the background of this scene that Luke paints for us is filled with historical tensions and rivalry and enmity. We have the economic tension between the two pairs of brothers, right? The, the, the collective and Matthew, the tax collector. We have the political tension between Simon the zealot and Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew seems to be at the center of this. Then there's the nationalistic tension between the Jewish people and the Phoenicians. And then there's the messianic tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, because member, remember, member, member, hey, remember, I do that a lot. Why do I do that? Um, member, um, they were plotting. They were plotting against Jesus. They were conspiring already at this point. And so at the base of this mountain, we have groups of people that would normally not associate with one another, groups that would never breathe the same air, groups that were historically incompatible, yet here they are standing next to each other oppressed next to oppressor. 
Victim next to victimizer. Powerful next to powerless. All of them sharing the same space, breathing the same air. And so this scene that Luke gives us, leading up to verses, like this is the scene that Luke gives us as we lead up to the verse uh, in 27 through 31, where Jesus says, but I say to you, listen. And I, under, I, I uh, sort of underscored that because he's talking to that group. This isn't, uh, a, this isn't a, a message uh, to any other group besides those that were there, Right? And it's timely for you and I, but he was speaking to that group. I say to you, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even the shirt, even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask from, for, for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And so when we zoom out a little and we see the context, and this is why, you know, this is why I love the historical context because it really does make this passage come to life. Jesus' words are far more provocative and also far more dangerous than we take at face value. While his enemies multiply and plot his removal, And removal is just a nice word for murder. He's teaching on enemy love to a crowd full of enemies. Now, enemies in the Greek is this uh, this plural word. That's not the word. (laughs) That's definitely not the word. It's this plural word, ekthos. You know what? I don't think I put that up there. It's ekthos. Say it with me, ekthos. I just said say it with me so that I can buy me time. Um, Ekthos, which means anybody that you don't get along with, anybody that you might have hostility towards, somebody that you might find difficult to be around. Now, my experience with this passage, this passage that, you know, this ethic of enemy love, Jesus says love your enemies, there's sort of a spectrum of interpretations, right? Some people see this as Jesus is talking about personal enemies, right? People that we have, we've had fallouts with, people, you know, family that we just don't get along with anymore, fam- people that have wronged us, people that have harmed us. The problem with that interpretation is that it ignores the systemic and political enemies around us. And like in, in Enrique's story, this is how... We justify things like war and violence. So interpret, some have interpreted this as Jesus is talking about political enemies, excluding personal enemies. But Jesus is using the word ekthos, and it's plural on purpose because he's talking about everybody. Everybody that we may consider difficult to love. Across the board, nobody's excluded. So there are two questions that Jesus is concerned about in this text. The first one is, how do we love our enemies? What does that even look like? And the second second one is, why must we love our enemies? Jesus gives us the answer to these two questions in this text. Why does it matter? And so when we figure out these two questions, we become a people and a church, a body, a community, a human, 
a space beyond enemies. What Jesus gives us on the Sermon on the Plain is a space beyond enemies. And that's what he's trying to show us in this text. So we'll start with the how. How do we love our enemies? Um, I've seen several different takes on this, but here's what love of enemies is not. It's not tolerance. Later on, Jesus talks about turning the other cheek and, and, and uh, we assume that Jesus is sort of condoning tolerance and being vulnerable to, to those that, that harm us. That's not the case. And we'll get into that. It's not tolerating abuse or mistreatment. It's not tolerating forms of violence. It's not tolerating the evils of a system or a structure or turning a blind eye to injustice. It's none of those things. Years ago, um, before my disentanglement slash deconstruction, for those of you, um, I had the worst boss in the world. He was six foot nine. I was a foot shorter. I'm still a foot shorter. Um, and just came on. It was, it was, this was years ago. I was, it was like high uh, volume sales. And um, he would always use like his physicality to intimidate people, and especially me. Um, and then he would make sort of uh, sly racist comments towards me. And... I remember for, for a while sort of struggling with, what do I do about this? He's my boss. Uh, we were one income, and I couldn't risk that. <laughs> and so I went to a friend at our church, um, and for, for some of you, we've, I've shared you know, sort of our history with, with uh, some former, a former church that we had. Um, and this, this friend essentially told me to overlook, like the way you love your enemy in this case is to just overlook it. Just push through. Um, this doesn't work, guys. This does not work. This makes it worse. Over the last few years, I have been an advocate for, for victims of spiritual abuse, of all forms of abuse, and in particular spiritual abuse. And I can tell you nine times out of ten, the folks that I have talked to have, have had similar situations. But this is not at all what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's not talking about tolerance. He's doing something far greater and far more loving. Now, the word for love in this passage is the word agape. You've probably heard it, right? Agape. Sounds the same in Spanish. Um, so it's the rare form. It's, this, it's like the rarest. In that time, you barely used this word. That's how rare it was. It was like this, it was almost like considered this abstract form of love. Like there were words for love, you know, when it comes to family and friends and brotherly love. Like we've heard them, phileo, you know, and eros and all these. Uh, in the English language, we just got the word for, we just got one word for love, right? If I, the same word I use to say I love my wife is the same word I use to say I love Nutella. I mean, it's the same <laughs> word. But in the Greek... There's all kinds of different words, and agape was the most rare, right? Um, and so agape is, the, the idea behind agape is this love that wills goodness. It wills goodness, like bends your own will, to will goodness towards the other, right? To will the well-being of another. Uh, Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar, he says about agape, to love someone unto the person that God created them to be. Ooh, 
How do I love my enemies that way? To love my enemies towards the person that they have to be, towards, towards the person that God has called them to be, right? McKnight also says to desire the thriving of the other. And so Jesus shows us what this love looks like regarding those we find the most difficult to love. Verses 29 through 30, he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. This is where we've gotten sort of twisted up in this passage. And again, I've seen this for years, and I didn't think anything of it. I just assume Jesus is, you know, sort of endorsing this radical form of pacifism uh, that I'm just not capable of with certain people. Um, I mean, that's just the facts. Um, so at quick glance, like, that's what we're thinking, right? That like Jesus is sort of pushing this, that we have to be super, like, radically vulnerable towards those who mistreat us. In Matthew's version of the passage, Jesus is even more specific. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn, out, turn the other also. Like, give them your left cheek. Theologian Walter Wink, he has a fascinating study on this. And it really helps us put some meat on this. During Jesus' time in several parts of the modern world, and throughout the modern world, I've actually known people who come from cultures where this is the case. Um, Touching people with your left hand is prohibited. Because the left hand was used for unclean things. Do I have to get... I mean, we know what those unclean things are, right? Uh, So... This was the case, right? And so the right hand was really the only hand used for touching others. To be slapped on the right cheek with no use of the left hand meant that meant you're, you're getting backhanded with the right hand of the person. Because if, if you slap somebody on the right cheek with your right hand, you're going to have to, and like the open palm, you're going to have to put your arm in this weird, funky position So the backhand was the preferred option of the oppressor, of the powerful over the powerless. Plus in that time, like I said, the backhand, it was this way to show power over someone of lower status. Masters would would slap their slaves this way to show dominance. Husbands over their wives, fathers over their children. Like this this was one of the preferred ways to show dominance over somebody. It was like a reminder of their status over the other. But here's the thing. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, meaning turn your left cheek to your enemy, remember the left hand was rarely used to touch others. And a backhand with the right hand would require you to twist your arm in this really awkward position. Try it. I mean, I tried it out. I was trying to slap myself at home. Like, okay, I see how that works. Um, So the only way that you can strike somebody in that context, in that culture, on on uh, on the left cheek was with a right-handed fist or an open palm. Methods only used among people of equal status. When you punch somebody with a closed fist or you slap somebody with, an, with, with the palm of your hand, you were letting that person know that they're of equal status. A lesser person you backhand, someone of equal status, you hit with your fist or you open your hand. You see what's going on here? 
Striking someone with a fist or an open palm indicated that both the striker and the one being struck were of equal status. So by, turning the, by Jesus saying, turn your left cheek, the person being struck is non-violently challenging the perpetrator and refusing to be humiliated, refusing to be reduced, refusing to have their status lowered. Refusing to sacrifice their personal agency. And the enemy is forced to either stop the violence or raise the status of the victim. That's the choice that the enemy is given. Either I stop this, either I break the cycle of violence, or I hit him and I let him know we're of equal status. This is subversive, it's nonviolent, and it does something in this relationship. And so often, these sorts of situations that force people, these are, the, like, these are the sort of situations that force people to see the evil they are committing, and to see the humanity of the other person, to reflect even for a second on how harmful their words and their actions actually are. And so at the base of this mountain, Jesus is showing us what a space beyond enemies looks like. That the presence of Christ disrupts the antagonisms between people and reveals enemies. It unmasks enemies for the purpose of making space for repentance, healing, and restoration. In this text, it's not that Jesus wants his followers to get smacked around. He's showing that crowd that loving, our, that loving our enemies, personal and political, loving the most difficult to love, someone, you know, sometimes looks like asking the Holy Spirit for creative and nonviolent ways of revealing the wrong someone is committing. But violence is never the answer. That it would lead to repentance and that, the, and that cycles of violence would be broken. This is a lot different than those who say our enemies should be bombed or shot or tweeted about or canceled, right? But I would also throw in that sometimes loving our enemies, and this is something that I've learned personally, sometimes loving our enemies means loving them from a distance. Behind what a, uh, what a good friend of mine once, you know, once told me, what, what they call God-sanctioned boundaries. We love from a distance behind God-sanctioned boundaries and going through the process, sometimes a slow one, of forgiveness. It takes time sometimes to forgive. During that time of which we pray, we bless, and we bend our will to will goodness toward them like Enrique. I know this is difficult, and again, I can't pretend like I've figured this out, but I know because I know that forgiveness is a much healthier space to be in than resentment. And we do this, and here's the why. We do this because, as Jesus says later on in the passage, so that we might be the children of God, so that we can embody and put on flesh and bone what it means to be a member of the family of God, his new creation family. 
In Matthew it says, so that we might be the children of our Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so my prayer today is that we enter this process, if if you're struggling with loving somebody that is difficult to love, my prayer is that you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you along this journey of forgiveness and that we can strive to love like the sun and the rain, elements that give life to earth, that, that the things that we aspire to, that the things that we desire for others gives life and leads people to repentance and restoration and healing for them, but also for you. It's a process. I've gone through it. I'm going through it. But we can all do it, and we can especially do it together. Amen? I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for thank you for your living word. Thank you for your care. Thank you for your love. Your love that is not coercive. It's not forceful. Love that is patient and long-suffering and that walks alongside us and every step back that we take You take that step back with us. You stick there by our side throughout this entire process and journey that we call life, Father. And I just thank you for your presence. I thank you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray for each of us here, Father, that that may be going through difficulties, that may have enemies of our own, people that we struggle to understand, people that we find difficult to love, people that we, we consider, quote, incompatible But, Father, I pray that you show us how to love like the sun and the rain, that you show us, Father, God, help us to be a space beyond enemies. And that among us, Father, there could be great conversations and stories can be shared and methods and ways, Father, that we can love one another. Continue to work in us the work that you have started and continue to heal those wounds And help us as we enter the journey of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you guys can get on your feet, let's, uh, let's do the Lord's Prayer together. All right, let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Guys, be blessed. Have a great Sunday.